0: Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Robert Festigi, professor of systematic theology at Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit, giving a talk entitled The Authority of the Roman Pontiff and Other Points of Division Between Orthodox and Catholics Today. Dr. Festigi's talk was part of the Conference on the Greek Schism, sponsored by Christ the King Chapel at Franciscan University of Steubenville. A wonderful definition of the Catholic Church Comes from st. Robert Bellarmine the great Jesuit who died in 1621 and he says the one and true Church is the assembly of human beings joined together by the profession of the same Christian faith and the communion of the same sacraments under the government of legitimate pastors especially the one vicar of Christ on earth the Roman pontiff now that's a very interesting and good definition. The only thing maybe to be qualified in light of uh, Vatican II, Lumen Gentium 27, is that bishops also could be recognized as vicars of Christ in their own diocese. Lumen Gentium 27 says that. But the one or the uh, supreme vicar of Christ on earth, the Roman pontiff. But what's interesting about this is that the essence of this continues in terms of what is needed for unity in the visible church of Christ on earth? And so as I note in his 1959 encyclical, Ad Petri Cathedrum, Blessed John 23rd, soon to be Saint John 23rd, points to these three unities, faith, sacraments, and ecclesiastical government as the characteristic signs of Catholic identity. As he observes, the Catholic Church is such that she is adorned and distinguished by these three characteristics, namely unity of doctrine, government, and worship. Now, I have found this, first of all, because it's simple. It's just three. But it's very helpful in understanding what happens uh, or how the Catholic Church views groups of Christians who break away. And so this is why, uh, from a Catholic viewpoint, the separated Eastern churches are churches in the true theological sense, because they are still in apostolic succession, and they maintain a true episcopacy and priesthood, and therefore a true Eucharist. Whereas the break that the breaks that occurred from the 16th century on in the West, with the uh, the Protestant groups or the Reformed groups, as they call themselves, uh, I don't you know that's just what they call them. You know the French. Uh, you know, when they had the the Reformé in in France, the the, the French Catholics like Bossuet would always call them l'église reformée prétendue, the pretending to be reformed church. But that's, uh, well, in any case. But what happened with the the Protestant um, break, it was much more profound because it went at apostolic succession and the priesthood. And if you don't have a valid priesthood, five of the seven sacraments go. Okay. And of course, Luther and others, oh, they only recognize two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And since they destroyed or broke away from the priesthood, they don't really have the true integral Eucharist. Okay. So this was a great tragedy. It was a, it was a great break. And I was interested that Florovsky saw the same thing. He says, at least... With, with, with Rome, you have sacraments, but with the, with, 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 uh, the Protestants, they, don't, they lost that. Um, now, Vatican II comes along, and we see that same sense of these three unities, faith, sacraments, and ecclesiastical government. And in the decree on the Eastern Catholic Church's orientalium ecclesiarum number two, there's this wonderful definition of the church I I think it's my favorite maybe even surpassing that of uh, Bellarmine because it's tight the Holy Catholic Church which is est the mystical body of Christ is made up of the faithful who are organically united in the Holy Spirit by the same faith the same sacraments and the same government and So then in Lumen Gentium 14 of Vatican II, fully incorporated into the church are those who possessing the spirit of Christ accept all the means of salvation given to the church together with her entire organization and who by the bonds constituted by the profession of faith, the sacraments and ecclesiastical government and communion are joined in the visible structure of the church who rules her through the supreme pontiff and the bishops. We see the same emphasis on the three signs of belonging to the one church. Unity in faith, what if we believed all different things? But then unity in the sacraments and unity in ecclesiastical government. Now with the Orthodox, the break is primarily over ecclesiastical government. Though there are differences of the faith, But we accept all seven mysteries of the Byzantine, the separated Byzantine uh, Christians, mysteries or or sacraments. Do they accept ours? It's an internal question for the Orthodox to face. In the 18th century, there was a ruling uh, that only Orthodox baptism is valid. And so there was the practice of rebaptizing. the Catholics who, who who wanted to enter the Orthodox—that's still done in some very traditional uh, Orthodox communities, like what was called the uh, Orthodox Church outside of Russia. You see, um, I asked Father Hopko, the former dean of St. Vladimir Seminary, about this, and he said, "Oh, we 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 don't rebaptize Roman Catholics." Um, and we don't even chrismate them sacramentally. We have an anointing to reconcile them in, with the true church, as, as, he underst- uh, as the Orthodox would understand it. Um, and with, if they've convinced the Protestant has a valid baptism, they just have chrismation, or what we would call confirmation. Um, but it's a tension there, you know. Um, and uh, but the Catholic Church has always accepted valid baptism outside of the Catholic Church if, this, if, if, if it fulfills the requirements of valid baptism. Um, sometimes there has to be inquiries made. Like just uh, about 10 years ago, there had to be an inquiry whether Mormon baptism is valid or not because they have you know, the water and baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, but it was decided it was not because it's Mormon baptism, though they use the same words, their understanding of the Trinity is so different. It's really like three gods united in for, uh, with one purpose. But this helps, I think, or at least it helps me, to see what we're dealing with here. The, we share much of the same faith, though we'll see that there are points of division, which I'll point out. Uh, but that sharing of the same sacraments, that's very profound. Because as Vatican II said, the Eucharist, the Eucharistic sacrifice is the source and summit of the entire Christian life. The source and summit of the entire Christian life. But what we see as the most profound ongoing division is uh, full communion with the ecclesiastical government. In the year 2000 the congregation for the doctrine of the faith issued the declaration under then the prefect Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger Dominus Jesus a wonderful document very much needed to correct some misinterpretations of Vatican II and it was reasserted the unicity of the one Church of Christ therefore there exists a single Church of Christ which subsists in the Catholic Church governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. And the churches, which, while not existing in perfect communion with the Catholic Church, remain united to her by means of the closest bonds, that is, by apostolic succession and a valid Eucharist, are true particular churches. In fact, on a particular level, they could be called sister churches. Therefore, the Church of Christ is present and operative also in these churches, even though they lack full communion with the Catholic Church, since they do not accept the Catholic doctrine of the primacy, which, and I put it in bold, which according to the will of God, the Bishop of Rome objectively has and exercises over the entire Church. That is the Catholic claim, that the authority that the successor of Peter enjoys is not something we made up. It is divinely instituted. Whereas the patriarchates and the the Pentarchy, yes, the Church affirms this and gives great respect for this ancient ecclesiastical tradition, but it's not seen to be uh, of uh, divine origin. In fact, even in the Orthodox uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, churches today, you don't have the Pentarchy because you have nine patriarchs, nine patriarchal churches out of the fourteen or fifteen autocephalous um, Byzantine Orthodox. Um, so, uh, the, the, this 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 would be more of ecclesiastical origin. Okay. As Doctor, as, as Professor Lakoutis had mentioned it's not just the schism of Constantinople from Rome or the Byzantine uh, schism. There were other schisms, so that in my notes there, you see I mention the Assyrian Church of the East, which had been called the Nestorian Church, broke away after Ephesus in 431. Actually, most, there are more now uh, Catholics who come from that tradition than there are the separated Assyrians. The Chaldean Catholic Church comes out of that tradition. They are far more numerous than the Assyrian Church of the East. And it didn't make the headlines, but uh, an Assyrian uh, bishop in California asked to come into communion with the um, a Chaldean Catholic Church. Then there are the, what we call the Oriental Orthodox Churches. These are from the, uh, the groups that did not accept the definition of uh, Chalcedon—that Christ is one person to be acknowledged in two natures—so they're often called Monophysites. Some of them don't like that term, but that's uh, that's really the origin of these Oriental Orthodox churches. Sometimes Syrian Orthodox, uh, the, um, Cop- the Coptic uh, Orthodox Church in Egypt, and the Armenian. Um, Uh, Apostolic Church, these would be among those, also in Ethiopia. Then the largest group of separated Eastern churches would be the Eastern Orthodox churches, and um, which Professor Lakutis has already spoken about. But then there are the Eastern Catholic churches. And these are Eastern churches in full communion with the Pope or the See of Rome and their liturgical, spiritual, and disciplinary traditions, that is, their ritual traditions, differ from those of the Roman or Latin Rite. And these are either Eastern Catholic churches that always remained in communion with the Catholic church, such as the Maronite Catholic Church from Lebanon um, or the uh, Albanian, Italo-Albanian uh, uh, church, Catholic Church in southern Italy, or groups that came back over the centuries back into Catholic communion. Now, that's the problem of what is called uniatism. And that's a very sensitive point for the Orthodox, the idea that they have the sense that the Latin uh, Catholics want to unite their uh, groups of them and have them go under under Rome. Uh, The better term to use, rather than a uniate Catholic, is an Eastern Catholic, an Eastern Catholic. Um, or specify the, the Catholic by either the ritual tradition or the Church—Chaldean Catholic, Byzantine Catholic, or Ukrainian uh, 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 Catholic. Those—that would be the proper way. Maronite Catholic. Now, these schisms—schisms schisms seem to have occur, occurred even at the very—even in scriptural times. There were breakaways, and then there were some early groups that broke away. And then the question is: What? How do we? Understand when they come back into communion. So we see this in some of the early ecumenical councils Nicaea 1 Constantinople 1 Ephesus and Chalcedon there was an attempt to overcome the divisions or to Make clear. What was the faith of the church? What were the proper teachings? then there were the mutual excommunications between Rome and Constantinople there was this tension this rivalry between the Latins uh, in Constantinople, and uh, there was an event and uh, in his revised edition of, of, of his book on the Orthodox Church, Bishop Callisto Ware mentions this, the slaughter in 1182 of many Latins in Constantinople. Um, but two wrongs don't make a right, that horrible uh, sack of Constantinople um, in 1204. And in the year 2004, uh, Pope Blessed John uh, Paul II issued an apology. You see, it happened. But one thing is interesting: it happened in 1204. But in 1274, there was a re- the the uh, Byzantine emperor wanted to come back into communion, maybe for uh, political reasons. But it didn't stop. That, in and of itself, did not stop attempts for reunion. So the Second Council of Lyons sought to restore unity. Then there was the Council of Florence, which achieves agreement between the Greeks and other Eastern churches and the Catholic Church on some of the contested issues of purgatory, the filioque, and papal primacy. But the reunion, though, dissolves, at least officially, in 1483. It was agreed at the council, but it was very difficult to enforce. Um, Mark of Ephesus was very much opposed to it, and so on. I think Father Gill's history is probably the best on this, the, the Council of Florence. But there were, have been hostile histories written you know, uh, um, from some of the Byzantines about what happened, saying that they, they were not free to speak, or the emperor was, was, was forcing them to speak. But the acts of the council show that they were able to voice their minds. There was rigorous theological discussion. And what was interesting, though, is like something like purgatory was not seen to be church-dividing. It wasn't really whether purgatory exists. Maybe you call it a different name, but what was the nature of the purgatorial fire? Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the Protestant Reformation movements, but the, down through the centuries, just very quickly, there were these, you know, these groups of separated Eastern Christians came back into Catholic communion, the union of Brest. Ending in 1596, many of the Ukrainian Orthodox Christians come back into Catholic unity. The union of uh, Uzharod, many Ruthenians and Slovak Byzantines. Then 1700, many Romanian Orthodox formed the Romanian Catholic Church. Um, The establishment of the Armenian Catholic Patriarch in 1724, the Syrian Catholic Patriarchate in 1783. So even if there were small groups, or the Coptic Catholic Patriarchate, the Bulgarian Catholic Church. Then in 1893, Leo XIII wrote an encyclical urging the separated Eastern churches to return to Catholic unity. He praises the heritage of the Christian East, and he does call them churches um, and uh, recognizes them as such. Then in India, there had been large groups of these uh, Monophysite, we might call them, and also Nestorian Christian churches. And through long processes, there was formed the Syro Malankara Catholic Church, which was coming out of the Monophysite tradition. Um, and they've been in communion steadily since 1930. And um, then the Syro Malabar Catholic Church in India since 1934, a very large. Eastern Catholic Church in India. Then there were attempts to overcome some of these Christological discussions. There was a common Christological declaration between the Catholic Church and the Assyrian Church of the East in 1994. Again, it didn't make headlines, but basically affirming the essence of Chalcedon—that the human and divine properties come together in one person. And um, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, the Assyrian Church. That was concerned with honoring Mary, both by the title Mother of God and Mother of Christ, our God and Savior. So it was almost like a distinction without a difference. But the Assyrian Church of the East said, we we accept both as legitimate. And it was the 1996 one overcoming the monophysite uh, tendencies of the Armenian Apostolic Church, where they agree, at least the Catholicos, their patriarch, agreed uh, with this formula rather brilliant formula, not using the word natures, but that the human and divine properties come together in one person. Um, now you have the patriarchates, but as I said, um, the Orthodox now have more than just the four, because if the Pentarchy was important, well then you, after they say Roman into schism, then you have a tetrarchy. But now we have the Moscow Patriarch, uh, the Romanian Orthodox Patriarch, the Serbian, the Georgian, uh, the Bulgarian and then you also have other autocephalous Orthodox churches without patriarchs um, then there are Eastern Rite patriarchs of like the Coptic Catholic um, the Chaldeans Greek Melkites Ant Antiochene or the of the Maronites the Armenians the Syrians there's also a Latin patriarch of Jerusalem then there are Latin titular patriarchs of Lisbon and Venice you see when um, Cardinal Scola was moved from Venice to Milan he lost his title of patriarch but it was just a title and then in the East Indies some people still call the the Bishop of Goa and uh, de Mao uh, a patriarch the title patriarch of the West um, was dropped from the Anuario Pontificio in 2006 and um, part of the reason was it, it had never really been understood and it, it didn't quite, pa- uh, it, it, the West now is ambiguous. It could refer to New Zealand as, you know, as, as well. It's not like a territory, a regional territory. If we were to make sense of it, it would, he would be the patriarch of the Latin church. But um, the decision was made and uh, um, I know some people didn't like it, even on the Catholic side, but it was made and it said it doesn't change any reality. It was just accepting the fact that the term patriarch of the, of the West was ambiguous. I think what was behind it, but it would be a little too bold to say it, is some of the Orthodox would say, well, you have just jurisdiction over the West, even though the West is ambiguous today, you see? And this idea of uh, a regional jurisdiction, whereas we say, uh, the successor of Peter, enjoys a universal type of jurisdiction. But the word jurisdiction frightens many Orthodox because then they think it's going to usurp the uh, uh, authority. If we, we come into union with Rome, we're going to lose our, uh, uh, the, the jurisdiction we, we, we enjoy. The Eastern Catholic churches do have something analogous or close to that with the, uh, what Eastern Catholic canon law calls a uh, 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 sui juris status, that, like the Chaldean Catholic Church, is a sui juris of its own right. You see, and what's interesting because I try to read the the um, uh, Vatican bulletin, but usually when um, when the Holy Father names a bishop who's of the Latin right, it says he names, you know, a nominato, you know, but when. And uh, one, uh, a bishop is named from one of the Eastern uh, Sui Orders Catholic Churches, a different expression. He has accepted. He has acknowledged. Uh, acetato, I think, is the Italian. So he's accepted. He's acknowledged this. The idea is he has the right to intervene, but for the most part, he wouldn't. He just established his communion there. Now that's important. Now we get um, to the heart of what I'd like to discuss And I'll try to do it quickly, but thoroughly, as as much as possible. The main differences, now some of you might not have gotten the full handout, but this would be what I'm looking at now. The main doctrinal, or we could say even disciplinary differences between Catholics and Eastern Orthodox today. And this is not necessarily exhaustive, but it's a question of how do we understand the papacy? How do we understand papal primacy? Only in recent years, this is coming from a met now Metropolitan Callisto Swear, uh, have in this joint international Catholic Orthodox dialogue or commission, have the Orthodox members of that accepted uh, papal primacy. It's a little bit frightening, but the question of what does it mean? And I think if you are a study patristics, it's very difficult to ignore that. It's there. It's just a question of what does it mean. I mean, it's there in St. Ignatius of Antioch. You hold the first place, that's a type of primacy, in love. right? The presidency in love. This is a big one. The number of ecumenical councils. That the Catholic Church states that there are 21 ecumenical councils. When Blessed John Paul, uh, John the 23rd, opened the Second Vatican Council, he specifically refers to it as the 21st Ecumenical Council. In the solemn closing ceremony, one of the cardinals, speaking in the name of all the fathers of the, he says, "We the of all the fathers of the council says we the fathers of the 21st Ecumenical Council." So it has a lot to do with what are the what are the criteria for an ecumenical council. There was development, even in the West, about this. But then a gradual consensus uh, was achieved. And then John XXIII the um, stated there are 21. Um, Lumen Gentium 23 of Vatican II, and then this is incorporated into the codes of canon law of 1983, the Latin code, and 1990, the Eastern Catholic code, acknowledged that an ecumenical council is ecumenical if it is if it is convoked as ecumenical by the Roman Pontiff, or confirmed as such. That would take care of some of those Eastern uh, early ecumenical councils where there might have been papal legates, but it might have even been called by the by the Emperor, like Constantine, okay? or. The Second Ecumenical Council of Constantinople I, it wasn't even called as an ecumenical council. It was a local council. But then it later on, post-factum, it is given at the Council of Chalcedon by accepting the creed that was attributed to that council. It was given ecumenical status, post you know, after the fact. Um, The filioque, well, this was already mentioned, the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. It is accepted by Catholics, generally rejected by Eastern Orthodox. Now, among Eastern Orthodox, you'll have some taking the position of Photius uh, that it is heretical. Others say it is not heretical, but it should not be dogmatic. It is a theologumenon—that that is a a legitimate theological opinion (laughs) That would be it. I was present at that 1994 this in, in South Carolina this 1994 uh, conference, um, and most it was called traditional ecumenism. In other words, I wanted to gather together, uh, Evan, uh, Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, who were, or all agree, you know, to have proper ecumenism. But it was interesting, you know. Father Neuhaus, uh, Neuhaus was there. Father Fessio, uh, James Hitchcock. I, I was honored to be there. Well. My job was to be the respondent to uh, Bishop Callistos Ware, who spoke about the Trinity. Well, of course, we both accept the Trinity. <laughs> so I said, what am I gonna do? But in one footnote, he brought up the filioque so, uh, issue, so I kind of uh, commented on that. But I was, I was trying to explain what I thought might be a way of framing the filioque more acceptable to the Orthodox, and I was using Saint Augustine. And who says that the Holy Spirit proceeds principally from the Father, but then um, in a secondary way from the Son, because the the Son advances the Holy Spirit that he receives eternally from the Father as a gift. So I didn't know whether, you know, I'd say, well, he's going to disagree with this, but I was very pleasantly supply, surprised. Bishop Callistos Ware gets up and says, I have no problem, you know, British, I have no problem with the filioque, provided you explain it as Professor Fastigi has explained it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. <laughs> so um, he, he likes Augustine, as Florovsky likes Augustine. <laughs> but Augustine, of course, believed in the filioque, as did Pope Leo I, who is a great saint for the, you know, uh, honored by the Orthodox. Um, but he just, then, then he followed that with, I just don't want it in the creed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was the that was the point. Well, actually, the Catholic Church doesn't require the liturgical recitation of the filioque, the double procession. There are many Byzantine Catholic um, uh, churches, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, liturgies where they just they decide not to do it. I know the the, um, the uh, Chaldeans do, and. Um, and the Chaldeans also don't have infant communion. They, have, they wait for age seven or eight to give First Holy Communion. And they use unleavened bread. Now, maybe that's due to Latinization, but it's, uh, you know, uh, um, but that's just the way it is. Now, um, so not all Eastern rites are the same. I mean, the Byzantium kind of dominates, but some of these other, uh, uh, what we call, call most Semitic, or Middle Eastern rites, they have to be respected as well. Um, I think it would be very difficult to maintain the filioque as a heresy in light of the patristic evidence, especially in light of the fact that at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Patriarch Choracios, who was presiding, brought together the fathers of the council and had a creed a profession of faith where it wasn't the filioque, but the Holy Spirit pers- proceeds from the Father through the Son, and Saint Maximus the Confessor said the two are almost uh, are compatible; they're equivalent. Now okay. that's very, very important to keep in mind. Now, um, it shouldn't you know they, they, there was a document I think 1995 from the Pontifical Council um, for Christian Unity emphasizing. The compatibility of the Greek and Latin traditions on the double procession, purgatory. I, I just it just amazes me that some Eastern Orthodox have even said it's a it's a heresy. It can't be maintained. Father Brian Daly, S.J., who teaches patristics at the University of Notre Dame, wrote a book. You know, the hope of the early church. You I mention it, and he great patrologist, he received the Ratzinger Prize uh, for theology. But he shows that the belief in post-mortem purification is stronger in the East than in the West. And one of the first to really be clear about this was Clement of Alexandria, St. Gregory of Nyssa. It's just so obvious. And Gregory of Nyssa, maybe sometimes he borders on what is called a, a you know, that, that that the universal salvation, a long purgatory, but eventually every everyone might go to heaven, kind of leaves that open. Well, that was that, had, of course, had been rejected by a local synod. Mary's immaculate conception. Since 1854. It is a dogma for Catholics. It had all, almost assumed dogmatic status before that. I think a turning point was 1708 where it was made an obligatory feast day. And as early as 1617, uh, Pope uh, Paul V said it, that no one should write publicly or speak publicly against the Immaculate Conception. This was 1617, you could, you could deny it privately, but he didn't want it to be publicly um, denied. Um, and then there are some of these, um, let us say, um, well, there's, there, there, there's sacramental issues or moral issues and then liturgical issues, divorce and remarriage. This divorce and remarriage is allowed by Catholics only if the prior marriage is declared invalid. A declaration of nullity, what we call an annulment. But um, it's allowed by most Eastern Orthodox. And if you, if you turn a few pages, you will see that um, on my notes there <clears throat> on page 9 I quote Bishop Callisto swear it's kind of summarizing the attitude of the Orthodox on this he says the Orthodox Church permits divorce and remarriage quoting as its authority the text of Matthew 19 9, where our Lord says if a man divorces his wife for any other, any cause other than unchastity and marries another he commits adultery then he says since Christ according to the methion account allowed an exception to his general ruling about the indissolubility of marriage, the Orthodox Church also is willing to allow an exception. Certainly, Orthodoxy regards the marriage bond as in principle lifelong and indissoluble, and it sees the breakdown of marriage as a tragedy due to human weakness and sin. But while condemning the sin, the Church still desires to help suffering humans and allow them a second chance. When therefore a marriage has entirely ceased to be a reality, the Orthodox Church does not insist on the preservation of a legal fiction. Divorce is seen as an exceptional but necessary concession to human brokenness, living as we do in a fallen world. That concession to human weakness, I I read that and I said, that's what our Lord said Moses did. Moses allowed you to divorce because you were so hard to teach. It was a concession to human weakness. Mo- Moses, it's, it's, our Lord is implying Moses didn't want divorce, but because the people couldn't uh, uh, accept it, he allowed it. Um, and he said, yet assisting men and women to rise again after a fall, the Orthodox Church knows that a second alliance can never be the same as the first. And so in the service for a second marriage, several of the joyful ceremonies are omitted and replaced by penitential prayers, in practice, this second marriage service is scarcely ever used. Orthodox canon law, while permitting a second or even a third marriage, absolutely forbids a fourth. In theory, the canons only permit divorce in cases of adultery, but in practice, it is granted for other reasons as well." This is why it's very important to get the number of ecumenical councils straight. Because the Council of Trent defined the dogma of the indissolubility of marriage. It defined it. And it's very interesting to me, first of all, I think, as much respect as I have for for, uh, uh, Callistos, where his analysis of the Mathian text is flawed. As I explain, at first, the text seems eminently reasonable, but it fails to do justice what Jesus, to what Jesus actually teaches in the text. The exceptive clause in Matthew 19, 9, in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, is for porneia, not adultery. Some of the tr- other translations, the New International Version, it's awful. I think it uses, except for marital unchastity, they get that out of porneia. Now, porneia, where we get the word pornography from that. Right, um, And it means lewdness, incest, or sexual perversity, not moikea adultery. If adultery were included under the exception of pornea, then anyone wishing a, to divorce and marry again would only need to commit adultery to dissolve the marriage bond. <laughs> what does that do to our Lord's words? What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Well, people could seems like it's done quite frequently. People put asunder that bond. Um, It also um, would render void what Jesus teaches in the parallel texts of Matthew 10 and uh, 11 through 12 and Luke 16, 18. The Catholic Church understands the exception of pornea as referring to situations of sexual lewdness that render a marriage unlawful from the start. That's why I think the way it's translated in the New American Bible, 1986, is probably gets to the point, unless the marriage is unlawful. It's not literal, but it gets the idea across. Um, the sexual lewdness here might pertain to cases of incest or consanguinity, or pornea might simply refer to fornication. In the latter case, a union that is really a fornication, a cohabitation, is not lawful, and therefore it does not fall under the category of indissoluble marriage. It's very interesting to me. And again, the Second Vatican Council reminded us that our exalted status as Catholics is not due to our merits. It's due to the grace of God. And if we fail to live according to faith, hope, and charity, not only shall we not be saved, we shall be more severely judged. That's what the Second Vatican Council teaches. But it's very interesting. Every single group that has broken union with the Catholic Church, this is one of the teachings that goes. Because it's difficult. But our Lord taught that what God has joined together, let no one put asunder, and he acknowledged that it was difficult. So it's a very interesting point. And on what authority does Callistos where make this ruling? You know? Has there been an ecumenical council, you know, by his numbering that would allow divorce and remarriage becomes a practice? So these are some of the things. It, again, go back to the list of the dividing points, um, contraception. Uh, clearly rejected by the Catholic Magisterium. It has been rejected by the Greek Orthodox Synod, 1930, then it's been reaffirmed, but in practice most Orthodox Applied priests the principle of economia, that is kind of pastoral management. And as, as Bishop Ware says, it's increasingly accepted by Orthodox theologians. Now, of course, people fail to live, many Catholics fail to live up to the indissolubility of marriage and fail to uh, uh, follow the church's teaching against contraception. But the church has a firm teaching. People fail to live up to all the, all the commandments. You know? That's why we have confession. Um, and then some Catholic liturgical practices are rejected by the Eastern Orthodox, such as um, you know, uh, unleavened bread has been mentioned. I think most ecumenically minded Orthodox today say these are not church dividing issues. The Second Vatican Council tried to address that very clearly stating in the, um, in the decree for the Eastern Catholic Churches that the, that the Eastern rites have not only the right, R-I-G-H-T, but the sacred duty to preserve and to follow their liturgical disciplines. The Catholic Church wants very much to preserve these, because it's part of the heritage we would have. Now, I, I provided notes, as you could see, explaining, providing support from Eastern fathers for all of these teachings, I think it can be sustained that there's nothing that the Catholic Church teaches today that does not find support from Eastern fathers. So I provide support for our understanding of the papacy, support for the filioque, Support for Mary's Immaculate Conception. I don't know how else you could understand that quote I give from St. John Damascene. Right? Um, What I think is going to be very difficult is this notion of general or ecumenical councils. But you see, if one accepts that the Pope has supreme uh, authority or this um, ministry of communion, then the Pope could designate as was done with Constantinople, I, the Pope can designate a council that its matters of faith and, and, and uh, matters of faith and morals have universal um, applicability to the whole Catholic world. If part of the problem is the word jurisdiction. I think it's more papal authority. That's the better way of putting it. That there's universal papal authority, and um, you don't have to take my word for it. On pages five and six and seven, I provide citations from Eastern Church Fathers. One of the most interesting, and I'll just end with this because we could go on and on, um, is from St. Flavian on page six of my notes there. This is interesting because he's the patriarch of Constantinople. But the patriarch of Constantinople writes to the Bishop of Rome, Leo the Great, because of the terrible Christological dispute over monophysitism. And St. Flavian is a martyr because he wanted to read what Pope Leo wrote at the, what is called the robber council of Ephesus. And the imperial guards were sent to him, and they beat him up so badly he died. But before the council, he wrote to Pope St. Leo And he said, the whole question needs only your single decision and all will be settled in peace and quietness. Your sacred letter will, with God's help, completely suppress the heresy which has arisen and the disturbance which it has caused. And so the convening of a council, which is in any case difficult, will be rendered superfluous. Implying that the Pope can settle a doctrinal matter for the whole church. Now, if it were just one quote, then we could say, well, that was... was but you could see the one from St. Maximus the Confessor where he writes, this apostolic see, which from the incarnate word of God himself as well as from the holy councils according to the sacred canons and definitions has received and possesses the sovereignty, authority and power of binding and loosing over all the churches of God in the entire world in and through all things. That's what Vatican I taught. That's what Vatican II teaches. It's what the Council of Florence taught. It's perfectly Catholic, Um, A very interesting one is the one there of Bishop Stephen of Dora, who knew Latin. And there was the monothelite heresy that the one will, Christ has only one will. Patriarch Sophronius of Jerusalem appealed to uh, to Pope Martin to uh, oppose monothelitism. Patriarch Sophronius dies, but... Bishop Stephen then wrote, as he was instructed to do, uh, to Pope Martin I. This is an interesting quote because he cites all three gospel texts that Catholics appeal to in support of the papacy in one paragraph. Now, I inserted them so you would see it. And he says, it's, where is Dora? It's in Samaria. All right. It's in the east, believe me. It says, I would like to denounce monothelitism before the eminent chair, the teacher of all the chairs. I mean your superior and divine chair, since it may completely heal the wound. Your chair has been accustomed from the beginning to rule with apostolic and canonical authority. It is very evident indeed that it is not only the keys to the kingdom of heaven that Peter alone among all received. Besides the king of heaven by which he can open and shut for the well-being of believers and the misfortune of unbelievers, this true head and director, I think it's corpheus, like a a choreographer, like a director. Now, this true head and director of the apostles was the first entrusted with feeding the sheep of the entire Catholic Church, and the only one authorized to strengthen his colleagues and spiritual brothers when they become shaken, on account of the foreknowledge of God incarnate, who for our sake gave him power and priestly authority over them all." A more Catholic understanding of the papacy you couldn't ask for, coming from an Eastern bishop. And then we have St. Theodore of Studium, and maybe we'll end with this. He was one of the great defenders of the veneration of icons against the iconoclastic heretics who had been condemned by Nicaea II. You know, I, I had a former colleague who was an Orthodox uh, priest, and now he's retired, OCA, Orthodox Church of America, and he did admit, he said, you know, Rome came out in, on on the right side in all these Christological disputes. No. I know there's the case of Honorius and so on. Well, Pope, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, right after him, the Pope said he, he, his his words were taken out of context. You know, regarding support for the monoth- monothelite heresy. But there is this is what Saint Theodore of the Studite. Now notice his dates. You know, 806. Um, it's before the, the, you know, the, the days of, uh, of uh, the Photian uh, schism and uh, you know, the, um, the schism that uh, Professor Likudis spoke about. And he was a great defender of the veneration of icons, and the popes always defended the use of icons. So he regarded Rome as the court of last appeal. And so in his letter on page 7, I say, For it is to the great Peter that Christ, our God, after giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, conferred the dignity of the chief of the flock. It is to Peter, that is to say, his successor, to whom one must submit all heretical novelties introduced into the universal church by those who distance themselves from the truth. So again, this is, I think, maybe the the technique. I know it's a bit of like Catholic apologetics. But why not? See? Why not? you know, I've had people cite, it was written by then Father Ratzinger in one of his early books, where he says, we should not ask a, a, a Orthodox anything more uh, than was required in the first, cent, uh, the first millennium, you know, regarding the papacy. Have you ever, any of you ever heard that? Well, the question is, what was required? What was the understanding? is it wasn't like just one understanding. See? It wasn't a monolithic understanding. These are Eastern voices that need to be heard. Well, just a few words, and then I'll a- a end it. Where do we stand today? Well, you know, after I, I give some citations of Vatican II, praising the Eastern heritage. Um, and on page 10, I cite Unitatis Red Integratio, that Often there are complementary theological formulations for the same truth. Then after the, well, just as the council was coming to a close, the mutual excommunication between the Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Serolarius, and the papal legate, Cardinal Humbert, these were renounced. Then the preparations were made for the formation of the Joint International Commission for Dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church There have been 12 plenary sessions, um, and now they're facing the difficult issue of papal primacy. But as Bishop uh, Ware noted, at the Ravenna document in in 2007, Ravenna was a great place to meet because I've been there. It's a Byzantine city. I mean, it's in Italy today, but it's Byzantine, and you could see the ancient architecture. And you could see the points of agreement there that they recognize that Rome, as the church that presides in love, according to the phrase of St. Ignatius, occupied the first place in the taxus, that is, the structure of authority, and that the Bishop of Rome was, therefore, the protos among the patriarchs. They disagree, that is, Catholics and Orthodox, however, on the interpretation of the historical evidence from this era regarding the prerogatives of the Bishop of Rome as protos. A matter that was already understood in different ways in the first millennium well that's what i'm saying it it you know it's it's a complex matter well just go to number 45 it remains for the question it remains for the question of the role of the bishop of rome in the communion of all the churches to be studied in greater depth what is the specific function of the bishop of the first see, and in an ecclesiology of quinineo or communion and in view of what we have said on conciliarity and authority in the present text, how should the teaching of the first and second Vatican Councils on universal primacy be understood and lived in the light of the ecclesial practice of the first millennium? These are crucial questions for our dialogue and for our hopes of restoring full communion before us. So the question has been placed, we have to pray for those participating in these, we have to pray for the Catholics um, as well as the Orthodox, to be open to the Holy Spirit. So thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.